Good to see all of you and those of you who have joined online. Yeah, welcome, everyone. I draw your attention to Chapter 3 of the uh, Book of Romans. Uh, I want to deal, although we began this last week, I want to deal again with Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and spend a good chunk of our time today on this. Uh, I am committed to in-depth Bible study, as you know, and, and really committed to expositional preaching and to verse-by-verse analysis of the Bible. I think that's the only way to study it. But I must tell you in all honesty, these eight verses are some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. Uh, it is, it's, it, it's hard to know um, what Paul—I shouldn't say it that way. It's difficult to know exactly uh, what Paul is anticipating here. Because as I said last week, at least I think I said it last week, End of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul is using a diatribe form of reasoning, a diatribe form of presentation. What I mean by that is he's anticipating objections to what he's arguing. He's anticipating that someone is going to stand up and say, yes, Paul, but. So he's anticipating the objection and he answers it. And so what we have to do, it's a little bit like Jeopardy. We have the answer, but we have to figure out what the question was. What was the actual objection that was being made by this imaginary objector? And so Paul is really doing, and it's absolutely brilliant what he's doing here. Secondly, he's in a section in chapter 3. It actually started at the end of chapter 2, but he's in a section where he's dealing with the moral law of God revealed to the Jews. And he's revealing and focusing on and dealing with how the Jews who had the law looked at righteousness. And he's getting close to the thesis of the book, which we may get to this week, but definitely we'll get to next week, that we are justified, we're declared righteous, we're made righteous, not by keeping the law, not by works, but by faith. And so he's, he's really zeroing in on how the Jewish person, how the children of Israel in the first century, how they looked at this issue. And so what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 8 in their entirety and then go back. We started it last week, but then go back and really deal with what I think are the objections that he's anticipating. Again, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, which is, of course, what he's been talking about in the previous uh, end of the previous chapter? What is the value of circumcision, which was discussed? In chapter 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. We talked about that. The oracles of God would be the law and the prophets. All of the declarations from God in the New Testament, they were privileged to receive the inspired 39 books of the Old Testament. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. That's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. By no means. Let God be true, or everyone were a liar. As it is written, he quotes here from Psalm 51, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul 
little parenthesis there, I speak in a human way. By no means, again, the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, again, there's a lot there. But we talked about that last week uh, in those first uh, four verses particularly. But what I want you to think with me about is the Jewish people at this time, in the early first century, Paul had been a Jewish leader. He had been a Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel I, probably one of the most qualified people in this period of time to talk to the Greco-Roman world. He's talking to Jews here. And the Jewish people, now this is very important. I want to make two introductory statements. The Jewish people believe in the covenant of God's grace. They believed that they were the objects of God's grace. They believed that the Abrahamic covenant which and the Mosaic covenant were evidences of God's grace. They didn't deserve it, but God chose them. But, they said, this position of privilege was maintained by keeping the law. So, do you understand? you understand what I'm saying? The Jewish people in the first century believed in God's grace. They believed that they were the they were the, the receivers and receptors and, and the beneficiaries of his grace. Abrahamic covenant, Zay covenant, and so on. But they believed that that position was maintained by keeping the law. If we didn't keep the law, we'd lose that position. The second premise was, they, they're, they're suggesting to Paul, and this is what Paul is anticipating, his adversaries, that we should do evil in order to advance God's saving grace. That's, we're going to see that in, in this, this, this section we're going to study in detail in just a minute. It's, it's ridiculous, but this is what they're saying. Paul, if your gospel, which is a gospel of free grace, is true, then what we really should do is sin with abandon so they can experience more of God's grace. Paul's going to answer that. What I'd like you to do if, if you want to do this, is that I want you to look at verses, starting with verse 3 and going through um, verse uh, 7. There are, there are four characteristics of God, and there are four characteristics of Israel that Paul itemizes here. What I did in my Bible, I just put a little check mark after each one. First of all, the faithlessness of Israel in verse 3. The faith does their faithfulness, the faithlessness of the Jews, nullify the faithfulness of God. So their faithlessness, being unfaithful, the faithfulness of God. In verse 2, in verse 4, the truth of God, the lying of the Jew. And then going to verse 5, the unrighteousness of the Jews people, and the righteousness of God. And then finally, once again in verse 7, the lie versus the truth of God. So Paul is setting up a contrast here between where the Jewish people are in the first century 
and where God is consistently in all of his perfections. He's faithful, he's true, he's righteousness, and his truth is dependable. Whereas they are not faithful, they lie, they're unrighteous, and again, they lie. Now, yes, question? Oh, of course. So, so what's the difference between verse 4, that God be true, and verse 7, God's truth? What, the difference is what he does in verse 7 with that contrast between truth and lie. He asks, this is the question that the objector is, is going to pose. Why am I still condemned as a sinner? If through my lie, the Jewish person saying, I'm keeping the law, but they're really not, and God's truth abounds to his glory, if my lying, my not being faithful to the covenant, and God being absolutely true abounds to his glory, then why is he condemning me as a sinner? Why is he holding me accountable? If it actually brings greater glory to him. So that's the difference, Glenn. Because in verse 7, he repeats basically the same thing he repeated in verse 4. But he's at, this is a question that the objector is, is raising. If this all abounds to God's glory, if this all leads to God's glory, then why am I condemned as a sinner? Because isn't God's glory the primary objective of all of this? Okay? Yep. Thank you. All right. Now, I've written something on the board here. Because this is also an important part of understanding this section. The righteousness, the righteousness of God. He's mentioned it a couple of times in this short paragraph. But he's driving home a point here. The righteousness of God has two dimensions to it, has two aspects to it. Number one, the righteousness of God produces his plan of salvation, where he will make us righteous. And that we'll see that in the, later in chapter 3, the word that describes that, that defines that as justification, where the righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness when we put our faith in him. And so keeping that in mind, Paul adds, but there's something else to the righteousness of God that you Jewish people do not understand, that the righteousness of God also demands, also has a dimension and aspect to it, is judgment. Because he is perfectly holy and righteous, he must judge those who are unrighteous. And granted, that leads to him sending Jesus, but those who reject that, it also results in judgment. So the righteousness and holiness of God produces his plan of salvation, but it also produces, it also necessitates, it also requires his judgment. Does that make sense? So those two dimensions of the righteousness of God are central to this paragraph, chapters 3, 1 through 8. Now, given that, here is the objector. The it, it's it would have sort of been like this because this was not an unusual situation 
to see or to observe or to be a part of in the first century, whether you're in the Greco-Roman world or whether you're in the Jewish world. You would have somebody who is lecturing or teaching, and you would have a crowd of people. And during that lecture and during that, that, that time of study, people would stand up and say, but I object to this, but I don't believe what you're saying is true. You have to prove this to me. And this was very, very common in the Greco-Roman world because the people who would be philosophers and teachers, they'd travel from city to city, they'd run a hall, and people would come in and they would hear him lecture. And this was just a very common thing. So Paul is, is anticipating someone standing up and saying, time out, Paul, I don't agree with what you're saying. I object to what you're saying. So he's anticipating what these objections are. And there are three. There are three key objections. They're in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8. Now, what we've already looked at and what we already studied, and you know this from our study in parts of the Old Testament and things we've done over the years, if you've been here for a while. God is faithful to his promises. When he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. And both his salvation and his judgment are a part of his character. But what Paul has been saying, and what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show us, is that the majority of Jewish people have been unfaithful. That the majority of Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. This is what Paul is confronting. This is what he must explain. Because then that raises a whole bunch of other questions. But there are three that are very important here. Verse 5 is the first objection. Someone stands up. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us. If we are so unrighteous, this objector says, if we are so unrighteous that we do not and, and do, will not do what is right before God, then God would be unrighteous in judging us. They're rejecting this. They're rejecting this premise. They're rejecting this twofold understanding of righteousness. What they're saying is, if we are so unrighteous that we don't have the ability to do what God wants us to do, then God does not have the right to judge us. How can he inflict his wrath upon us if we don't have the ability to do what he wants us to do? Which is, Paul, what you're telling us. You keep telling us this. That everybody stands condemned before God. That no one, no one can do right before God. Everyone's, including you Jews. And Paul, and, and they're saying, the objector's saying, if that's true, that we are incapable of doing what God wants us to do, then on what basis is he going to judge us? 
You, you follow that? They're, they're, they're focusing in on this whole idea. If all humans, including us Jews, stand condemned before God because we cannot do what he wants us to do, then on what basis will he judge us? He has no right to judge us. Follow me? I'm right, what I really mean is you follow Paul here. The same idea is if you have a job, you cannot meet the requirements, and they keep firing you. It's not fair to fire them because you get the standard I can't meet. That's right. That's it. It's that it's a it's a very human centered but very understandable objection to raise. It's really instead of taking a mirror and focusing on yourself and your own inadequacies. You turn the mirror and shine it toward God. It's your fault. On what basis can you condemn us? I provide the job. What's that? I provide the job. Yeah. <laughs> so how does Paul answer that? Verse 6. By no means. Again, that's the strongest way you can say no. How then could God judge the world? If God can't hold you, Jews, accountable, he could not possibly hold the Gentile world accountable because you have the law. His law reveals his righteousness, reveals his character. If anyone should understand the righteousness of God versus the unrighteousness of humanity, you Jews should understand that. And if you're arguing he can't judge me, how could he possibly judge the whole world? Which causes the objector to raise a second objection. It's in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, But if through my lie, the Jew, my lie, I'm saying I'm righteous, I'm saying I'm good enough, but I'm lying, I'm really not, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If God's reliability to himself abounds because our lies bring his glory, which was revealed in his judgment, then why does he judge me as a sinner? You see, what the, what the objector is doing, you're saying all of this is for God's glory. And all of this brings God, God great glory. Well, then how can he condemn me? I am a part of this predetermined plan, this electing grace of God. I really don't have a choice in all this. I really am almost like a robot. And how can he actually condemn me as a sinner? Everything brings glory to him, and it's all about him and his glory. How in the world can he judge me? Now, that's kind of, uh, I've been in that kind of discussion with people who are Christians, who really chafe at the whole idea of God's electing grace. And their argument is God's electing grace completely neutralizes my free will. Therefore, because I really am not free, and this electing grace of God brings his glory, then how in the world can he condemn me as a sinner? I'm not the one who is at fault. He is. He set it up this way. You follow me? 
Now you're looking at me with a deer in the headlight look. You're not following me. Well, to me, that's how you answer that. Railroad tracks, and this is how the Bible presents it, the railroad tracks presents the answer to that question or that dilemma. But the Jewish, the Jewish objector is saying, if this is all about the sovereignty of God, his elect and grace, which brings him glory, and I really am not free, then how in the world can he condemn me as a sinner? And Paul's answer is, well, actually, this immediately leads to a third objection. Verse 8, why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? Which the third objection is, if we who practice evil bring greater good to God, that is his glory, then doesn't it make sense that we sin even more to bring greater glory to him? And listen, that's logically, that's logically understandable if you reject the premise that humans do have free will. Reject the railroad track, which... Bill correctly brought up. And so the objector is saying, well, then what really we should do is sin more, do more evil, which brings greater glory to God. Right? Paul says that's a slanderous charge to level against God. And he's not going to give any more answer. And he concludes this paragraph with this declaratory statement. Their condemnation is just. It fits with the righteous character of God. That's correct. That's correct. Now, again, as I said at the beginning of this section, this this is difficult. But yet now that we're done, Maybe it's not as difficult. You could probably write a little thought paper on it, couldn't you? Let's review it again, and we'll be done. Paul is arguing that the righteousness of God has two dimensions to it. The righteousness that produces salvation. This will be discussed in the next paragraph, uh, in the next section, where that leads to the doctrine of justification. How does God make us righteous? The righteousness of Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, is applied to our lives by faith. But his righteousness also has the dimension of his judgment. If he is righteous and holy, he must judge sin. Now, these two are inextricably linked because that's why he sent Jesus. He would judge Jesus, so he does not have to judge us. But those two go together, and the Jewish objector is chafing at that. The Jewish objector is chafing at this judgment idea because based on the electing grace of God and that questioning of the really free will of the human being, in this case the Jew, who believed 
in God's saving grace, in God's covenant grace, Abrahamic covenant, etc. But they maintain that relationship by keeping the law. If you don't follow that, don't understand that, you missed the whole point. And so they're saying, well, wait a minute. Our obligation is to keep the law, which we have done. You're saying, in your argument so far, is that everyone stands condemned before God. And it doesn't matter what you do, you cannot merit God's righteousness. Well, then I'm really not free. So how can God justly judge me? And in effect, because everything is supposed to be for his glory, then if everything trades glory, I'm not really free. How can he condemn me? As a matter of fact, to follow the logic of your argument, Paul, if everything brings greater glory to God, and even this plan of salvation brings greater glory to God, then I should do even more evil, which causes him to be more gracious, which brings him more glory. Sin more to experience his grace, which brings him greater glory. So let's sin with abandon, because it brings greater glory to God. Paul says that's a slanderous charge against God. Their condemnation is just. I just reviewed it again. You with me? More importantly, I really with Paul. All right, your silence either means you have no idea what I've been saying in the last 45 minutes, or you are or a half hour, or you're with me. Still percolating. Okay, still percolating. Well, yeah. May it percolate a long time. But it, again, as I as I said at the beginning, this is a very this is one of the most difficult paragraphs in the book of Romans, in, in some ways in the New Testament. But if you don't understand that he's responding to an objector, an imaginary objector who stands up and says, But Paul, and each there are three buts. And he answers each one. And he concludes that condemnation is just. No leg to stand on. All right. Anybody in line that needs a question answered? Are you with me all in line there, too? The guys in the room yep. are there already, yeah. yep. already writing their thought papers. So how are you yeah. guys? Huh. Good. All right. Now go to verse 9. Paul has now reached the conclusion of the argument he started in chapter 1, verse 18. He's reaching the conclusion. He's going to tie all this together. What, therefore, are we Jews any better off? Compared to whom? To everybody else that's not a Jew. Now, he talked about the privileges that Jewish people have, the five covenant privileges we saw in chapter 2, and that they have received all of the oracles of God, the 39 books of the Old Testament. But are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
under the power and judgment and condemnation of sin. This verse, verse 9, is a statement of human depravity. Every human being is guilty before God. Paul has just argued that. Why? Let's review. First of all, they rejected God's revelation in creation, chapter 118 through 32. Second, they rejected and suppressed God's truth, God's revelation as revealed in human conscience. And the, and the law, moral law, written on the hearts of human beings. And third, rejecting and distorting God's moral law. Everyone, both Jew and Greek, are under sin, are under the power and condemnation of sin. Verse 9 is a statement of human depravity. He has just, he, Paul, has just proved the universal condemnation of all human beings before God because they have suppressed his truth. And you saw in that dialogue with that objector, verses 1 through 8, how the Jewish person, he's an, it's an imaginary, but it's probably what he's heard over and over again, how the Jewish person distorted the moral law of God. We have a covenant relationship with God based on his grace, but we maintain that covenant by works. That's what Paul's dealing with. So what he does now in verse 10, and it goes all the way through verse 18, is he quotes from the Old Testament. But he, I mean, in verse uh, verse 10 all the way through verse 18, it's, it's multiple condemnation. I mean, most of your Bibles have a little margin where it shows you the Old Testament references. So if you're really interested, what are you, there, are, there are about seven different Old Testament quotations here. But he's pulling them all together. Look at what he does. As it is written, it goes back to the Old Testament to prove human depravity. He goes back to the inspired Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, to prove the universal condemnation of all humanity. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks sin. What are the key words of verse 10 and 11? None. No one. The universal and pervasive nature of depravity. None. Not one. He's quoting, by the way, there from Isaiah chapter 14. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Again, in that verse, all. No one. Universal condemnation of all humanity. Universal condemnation of human depravity. Verse 13, verse 14, you see this in their speech. You see this in their words. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This human depravity, this universal human depravity is evidenced 
in their speech. It's evidenced in what they say. And then verse 15, 16, and 17, it's evidenced in what they do. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. The depravity of the human race affects everything in society, everything in organized civilization. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruined in mystery. And the way of peace they've not known, the way of shalom, the way of being right with God and right with one another is not known. And then verse 18, the summary statement, which goes back to verse 9. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, fear, remember that word in both the Old and the New Testament, when you translate it as fear, is a worship word. It, it does mean, you know, cowering in a sense in the presence of God, but it also means there's no acknowledgement, no worship, no consideration of worship, no acknowledgement of God, not even before their eyes. Don't even consider it. And so this compendium of all these Old Testament texts, there's seven of them, I believe, that he just knits together in this creative, quoting from the Old Testament to prove his point, the universal condemnation, the universal depravity of all human beings. He buttresses it with all of these quotations from the Old Testament. None, not one, all. Everyone stands condemned. It's evidenced by what they say. It's evidenced by what they do. No one, no one worships God. No one is devoted to God. No one loves God. What part of the expulsion from the garden didn't they get? Well, I mean, that, that's, Fred, that's, that's the key point to begin your theology. The Garden of Eden shows that our parents, as human beings, started it all, joining the rebellion against God. Sure, too, this time, that's ancient history. Probably, yeah. Just like it's really ancient history for people today. If you if you go into a typical situation in our in our in our world today, and you say I really believe in the literalness of Genesis one two and three, you will be laughed at. Mom, nobody believes that anymore. But if you don't understand what's going on in Genesis one two and three, you don't understand the rest of the Bible. <laughs> and that's why it is so important to understand those those three chapters. In, in this class, we have done a, a very detailed uh, study of that a couple of years ago. All right, so again, and, and it's appropriate that Paul does this. He established, he has established from chapter 118 through where he is right now, he's established the universal condemnation of all humanity. Or let's use another phrase. The universality of human depravity. None, there is not one human being that does not stand depraved. None, no one, all. It's evidenced by what they say, their speech. It's evidenced by what they do. No one naturally worships God.
All right. Now, um, are you with me? <laughs> I mean, he, again, he's reaching the apex of his argument now. I mean, he has, he has proved, he's proved why God has to make us righteous. God has to do something. I mean, he's just, he's just shown his supplies everywhere. God has to do something here. And he's almost there. But I'm glad he did this. He wants to do one more thing before he gets into the doctrine of justification, which begins in verse 21. I believe what Paul does here is he wants to explain the importance of the law, or maybe putting it another way. If all this is true, then why did God give the law? What was its role? What was its purpose? Verse 19 and verse 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, what is he doing here? Because he, he goes on, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through law comes the knowledge of sin. So let's start at the end, at the end of verse 20, and work our way back to the beginning of verse 19. That clause, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, is profoundly important. It's one of the answers to the question, why then did God give the law? He just stated, comes the knowledge of sin. It helps us to understand the depths of human depravity. It helps us to understand the character of God, the character of humanity, and why God has to do something. Because the law reveals the depths and how interconnected every aspect of the human being is in rejecting the righteousness of God. It shows all of the aspects of human depravity in their fullness and their completion. So one of the reasons God gave the law was to show the sinfulness of sin. Let's put it positively, is to show the moral character of God. And to show the moral character of God and how far we are from that. Something has to change here. He says, and I'm working my way backwards now, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, first clause of verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, to his, there's God, in his sight. That's interesting. The works of the, what would the works of the law be? Well, circumcision, the kosher laws, keeping the Sabbath, doing all the sacrifices. The works of the law, you not produce justification. Now, let's stop there for a minute. 
if through the works of the law you cannot be justified, then before Jesus Christ showed up, how were people justified? Like Abraham. How was Abraham justified? By faith. By faith. This, is, this is going to be the argument in chapter 4. Because Paul must answer this. If Jesus brings the blessing of justification, then how, how were Old Testament saints justified before the cross? And Paul uh, brings to the witness stand in chapter 4, Abraham. And says, how was Abraham justified? And you'll see this in, in a couple of weeks. He quotes in, in chapter 4, Genesis 15, 6, he quotes it five times, five, four times. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul is establishing something. And see, this again, when you read verse 20, you say, that's what the Jewish person was missing in the first century. They believed in the electing grace of God, which produced a covenant. But they believed they maintained that relationship by keeping the law. So we understand God's electing grace. But for us to be saved, I'll use language we use today. For us to be saved, we must keep the law. Paul's just saying, the works of the law, no one has been justified. Circumcision, Sabbath, kosher laws, all of the ceremonial laws, the sacrifices, etc. That's not what saves you. That's not what justifies you. Now, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but you will see this in, in Romans. If you use New Testament word, the law was about sanctification. The law was how you walk with God. You are justified by faith. You believe God. You believe what he said. So you're justified. You maintain that relationship through keeping the law. It's about sanctification. I'm using New Testament words here, but it's about sanctification. It's about how you walk with God. The law speaks to those who are under them in verse 19. I'm working my way backwards now. The law speaks, the law says it speaks to those who are under law. Okay, that's the Jews. And the result, listen, this is a result clause. You have to follow this. The intended result is every mouth may be stopped. Everyone's, everyone's objections are stopped. Why? The whole world may be held accountable to God. If the Jews who had the law, are not saved. Then no one can be saved. That's a reasonable conclusion. It's wrong, but it's a reasonable conclusion. The law was given to the Jews. And you watch what the Jews do with it. If the Jews who are given the law, if they can't be saved by keeping the law, then no one can be saved. You, you follow me? And so his, he, then he leads to what we just said. But keep, works the law. Keeping the law is not what saves you. Keeping the law does not justify you. Because all the law does is explain the depths of human sin. Moral character of God revealed in us at distance. <laughs> this is a hopeless condition. So Paul, he's shown the universal condemnation of all humanity. He's shown that this is evidenced by their words, by their deeds. No one fears God. And I want to add this little 
it's a bunny trail about the law. You're naturally going to come to the law. If the Jews who received the law, if they can't be saved through the law, then there's no hope for anybody, but you're missing the point. The law was not to justify. And so you, you read through all this, these first chapters, 118 through 320, you say, oh, my goodness. There's absolutely no hope for the human race. That's right. Except what God did through his son. And so verse 21 begins, and it will go on through chapter 5, begins the most important passage in the entire Bible on the doctrine of justification. Because Paul must now show how, how does God make us righteous? Everybody is waiting for Fred to come through that door. But that's not his name. I don't believe that was Fred. So, when God told Adam and Eve they could not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and evil, that was really the law to begin with. Yes, 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 it was, in the sense that it was a moral command of God to demonstrate to Adam and Eve and to all of us that human beings are not robots. Human beings have the capacity to disobey God. But if you disobey God's moral revelation, there's a consequence to that, and that's the separation from God, which is what death is. But you're absolutely right. In the Garden of Eden, there was only one moral command, not ten, ten commandments, one, which reflects the moral obligation of the human being created in God's image to obey the Creator. Are you morally accountable to your Creator? Yes, because the character of God is revealed in that command. Do you trust me enough? I've given you everything. I've given you a perfect garden. You're in total innocence. You have no needs. Everything, it is yours. I, he didn't tell Adam what to do. He didn't tell him how to farm. He didn't tell him anything. Plant soybeans in this, and beans here. You know, he didn't do that. It's up to you, Adam. You have dominion status over my world, but you're moral creatures. There's a tree in the center of the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that. Can you trust me? Do you believe I have your best interests at heart? Do you, do you believe? Do you trust? Do, do you have your faith in me? And, of course, that's the importance of chapter 3. As Satan shows up, he deceives Eve, and, and the tragic consequences of that we live with every single day. I'm going to break the tension that we all experience here. A really good evidence of this, my wife loves... She absolutely loves to plant impatience. They're all over our yard, okay? <laughs> and outside under an ash tree that we have in our backyard, she had two really big pots of impatience. She's had impatience for decades since we've lived here. A rabbit started eating these impatience. And this is what my wife said. 
when we went out, it was a couple mornings ago before I was headed into the office. I said, honey, you got to go out looking for impatience. Something's been eating. And what she said, here again, it's all Adam's fault. And I mean, you know, that's, that's her standard. It's humorous. It's a joke. We have ongoing joke on our house. But I mean, the, the reason for the, the toil and, and difficulties of, you know, insects and mosquitoes and flies and squirrels that are still digging in my yard everywhere, <laughs> and now rabbits. So Peggy said, I want you to buy a gun, and I want you to exercise your dominion authority over these rabbits and extinguish them from our yard. So, so we, what's that? Okay, a cat. Okay, I'll have to tell her. I'm, I'm kidding you because we live in the city. That would be kind of a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah. uh, or to Bay or someplace like that and, and get some peppermint spray. Peppermint spray. Brody still like peppermint. Our neighbor's got a cat that's clean just about every river out of our neighborhood. Really? He's, oh, he's got an eight out of our yard. This, it's just a dead cold yard. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing to know. Maybe he should read it. Yeah. Well, I broke the tension of this class, that's for sure. You're all... So I, I'm hoping, uh, I know this is a little bit of difficult material to cover, but I'm hoping you have been able to walk with me, walk your way through what Paul's been arguing. Creation, conscience, God's moral law. What has humanity done? They rejected, suppressed, and distorted all three. Therefore, the conclusion is, all stand condemned before God. So, we are at that point. I mean, if, if everything stopped with verse 20, it would be the most depressing part of the whole Bible, but it doesn't. Because now Paul has to explain, God has to do something. He has to change us. And so the question that, that he poses, in effect, is, how does God make us righteous? How does, I mean, he has to change us. And the, the word that is the key is he, God, has to justify us. He has to declare us righteous. How's he going to do that? Now, uh, we only have about five minutes. First two words of verse 21, what are they? But now. Strong adversity, strong contrast. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because he just showed in verse 19 and 20 that keeping the law doesn't save you. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there, all Paul's doing, and this is, should not be unfamiliar to you, all Paul is saying is, all this stuff about Jesus and about faith in him and justification is prophesied in the law and the prophets. It's not new truths. It was part of the truth of God laid out and declared in the law and the prophets, in those 39 books that God gave to the Jews. It's there. Where there is no distinction, 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The proof of verse 23 is 118 through 320. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the operative word there is all. And are justified by his grace as a gift. So justification. Now he's going to start using that term. Here it's a verb. It will also be a noun, justification. Here it's a verb. Are justified. How? By his grace. As a gift. In contrast to verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't work for it. It comes through God's grace as a gift. You don't work for a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't merit a gift. God gives it. And how does he give it? Through. The Greek word there is dia. Through. By means of. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the word redemption there, it's, there are three different Greek words for redemption in the New Testament. This one has the idea of God buying us. God purchasing us. God rescuing us out of the marketplace of bondage to sin. God rescues and redeems, but purchases, buys us out of the bondage to sin. Whom God, verse 25, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What was the price of that redemption? The blood of Jesus. Now, you see, I, I hope all of your translations have this, that word that's in the middle of verse 25, propitiation. Do all of your translations have that? Sometimes translations translate it something else, <laughs> but it should be propitiation. It's only used four times in the New Testament. But propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. God's judgment, his wrath is satisfied. And he's going to explain how that occurs in just a minute, but we're almost out of time. But he's going to explain how that happened in, in just a minute here. But a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So in, in those verses, particularly verse 22, 23, and 24, and ending with 25, you see the theme the thesis of this book. How does God do this? How does God make us righteous? How does he do that? Because he's just shown in 118 through 320 the universal depravity of all human beings. How does God make us righteous? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned to fall short of the glory of God but are justified by his grace as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. In the works of the law, no human being is justified. Verse 20. So how does God do it? We're justified by grace as a gift. By means of the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation. His wrath, his judging wrath is satisfied. How? By the shedding of his blood. That's the price Christ paid for our redemption. And it's received by faith. So the summary phrase of Romans is, we are justified by faith. How does God make us righteous? Well, we put our faith in his son. Who redeemed us? Who satisfied the wrath of God, which we deserve? And God offers it by his grace as a gift. And it's in effect, like my keys here, God places the gift on the table. It's yours. There it is. Everything's done. You don't have to do anything. Everything's done. What do we have to do? To pick it up. We have to put our faith. We have to pick it up. That's all God requires. And that's what Paul is arguing. You are just a, God makes you righteous by putting faith in his son who died for us, satisfied the wrath of God, and redeemed us. The price for that redemption was his so now, finally, after four weeks, instead of leaving this class depressed and in despair and despair, you have the triumphant message that we are justified by faith. Now, I, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but this is, this is the exciting apex and why the book of Romans is so triumphant. That's he the biggest. depravity, a need how God meets, meets our need. Okay? Rust. No, that's, I was just going to say that's the, that's the biggest apex right there. And the, and the biggest thank you, because uh, knowing that it is 100% reliant on Christ and 0% reliant on me that's right. is, is, my goodness, I can't think of a, a bigger thank you that you could yeah. cast. Amen. That's right. It's, it's just marvelous what God has done for us. When you see and understand the nature of human depravity and see how God solved our problem through Jesus, it's, 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 that's the gospel. That's what's, that's what's so exciting about the, the gospel. God solved our problem. Well, I've got I've to quit here, so I'm going to pray and let you go. Our Father, we are grateful for uh, the book of Romans that we've been able to study together. Uh, we, are reached, we have reached... Uh, that is crucial, crucial point, how God solved our problem. The depravity of the human race is everywhere. We see it everywhere. In the speech, in our actions of human race, we see it everywhere. But you solved our problem by offering Jesus as a sacrifice on the cross. His shed blood paid the price of our redemption, and it satisfied your wrath. You judged Jesus so you don't have to judge us. We praise your holy name for that. And as Russ just said, this is the apex of the book. It's so triumphant. And we are so thankful that you sent Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us now as that sign of the new covenant. We walk with you, desire to walk with you triumphantly in loving obedience because of what you've done for us. So we go from a class today, assured, confident, secure in our position because of what Christ has done for us. I praise you for that. In your son, precious, precious name.